Welcome to episode 228 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Switching it up this time. Did you like that? I See, did. no warning. You took me off, off guard here. This is how we do. We're coming at you strong. And we've got another episode of Book Club or Book Cast. What do we call it? Is it both those things? Yeah, I think we'll stick with Book Cast because we don't want to step on Guilt, Grace, Gratitude's toes too much. Fair enough. So we're back into David Murray's book called Reset. And we're going to be talking about something on this episode that once again is something I never thought you and I would talk about in this context. His chapter name is called Relax. So I presume we're going to relax in this episode. Just chill out. Have a good time. Yeah, I feel like we came in a little aggressive on this one. We should be like, I'm Jesse. Welcome to the Reform Brotherhood. And I've been like, I'm Tony. We're proud. Like, we should have come in a little smoother. Yeah. But yeah, that's straight like NPR style. I, I can't at this point, I can't remember how many times we've more or less mocked the NPR voice, but that definitely would have been the right tenor for this topic. I can't do the NPR voice though. I don't have it in me. I think for me, the quintessential, this is only going to appear to radio nerds, I think, but the quintessential NPR voice is Terry Gross. Like yeah. you're listening to Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I, for some reason, I always think of Phoebe Judd, even though she's not on NPR. <laughs> I'm That's Phoebe fair. Judge. This is criminal. I just turned it into Aaron Mankey now. <laughs> I'm Aaron Mankey. This is lore. I'm, I'm not Aaron Mankey. Please don't sue me, Aaron Mankey. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited about this. This was a good chapter. Uh, it's kind of funny how you and I joked that we were, you know, la- we expected the Sabbath, the Sabbath chapter to be in the first one. Uh, and, and all of a sudden now it's this one. Because uh, right. the first one was just about sleep, and now this one is actually about uh, relaxing and recuperating, and it's it's far more than the Sabbath. We'll get into it, but I'm I'm excited about this discussion. Yeah, I'm too. It's interesting that he titles it "Relax and Not Rest," but that's yeah. again all something that's coming to everybody's ears in just a little bit. So before we get to that, it's definitely time for affirmations and denials. Let's do it. I will kick it over to you and just say what you got. So I'm, my affirmation is short and sweet. So I don't know about you, but it seems like I always end up accumulating like an excessive amount of keys. So I mean like keys to like keys? unlock things. Yeah. So like I've got, okay. I've got the, the, the church here. I've got the, the side door, the parsonage door and the front door and the back door. So there's four keys right there. I've got a key to your parents' house. I've got two different keys for work. I've got my two car keys. I mean, we've just got a lot of keys. So I'm affirming a, dev- a little device. It's super simple. It's called Smart Key. And it, oh, it's yeah. basically like two pieces of metal that you screw onto your keys that turns it into like a Swiss Army knife. So um, the one that I got, it says it holds eight keys. That's actually pushing it. I think if you have more than eight keys, you probably want to buy the next level up. Um, they, they don't. It doesn't quite fit as as nicely as it seems like it should. But it's called Smart Key. They have a variety of different levels, mostly having to do with the number of keys you can have. But what it does is it takes all your keys, it combines them into sort of this like Swiss Army knife looking thing, and then you can just flip the key out instead of like having a ring where they all poke out at different sides and sever your femoral artery on accident. Um, yeah. So it. There's not much more to say about it. I have it. I had one that was like a leather one and it got all beat up. 
Um, but now I have one that's it's actually made out of like uh, like aluminum. And they have really nice ones made out of titanium, but I don't know why you need that. Um, they do have one that I guess has like a USB charger in it. So you charge that. it up and it's got like an extra battery you can plug your phone into. So they've got some pretty cool stuff. Um, you can get it on Amazon or I'm sure they I'm sure they have a website of their own as well. But I bought mine on Amazon. Um, yeah, check it out. It's helpful if you have a lot of keys. If you're one of those unusually blessed people that only has like their car key and one house key, then this is not the product for you. But I just find that in my life, I'm not that person. So it's nice to keep things organized. So I'm not trying to like actually you, but it's going to come across that way. Is it called key smart? Is it a smart key? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I only know that because I've kind of coveted this for a little while and I've always wondered, is it worth it? So you're saying it's worth it because you, I, I've seen your keys Yeah. and you had, you did have a stack of keys like in this kind of leather band before. Yeah. So this is better than that. Yeah. The, the design is better. Um, the, the leather key one, every time you turn the key, it also turned the screw that held the keys on there. So you have to constantly <laughs> tighten it. This one, the keys fit around a socket and then the screw goes into the socket. So as the okay. keys turn, it doesn't affect the screw. Um, and it's thinner. It, it's just a really well put together, well designed piece of uh, piece of machinery. It is a little tricky to get together. It was a little frustrating, but I don't know any way around that. I've heard that. But yeah, if, that if you this. have a lot of keys and you need to organize them instead of just keeping them all on that giant janitor style key ring, then this is the way to go. So do you feel like it's better in your pocket? Like the yeah. feel is a little bit better. It's a little bit more compact. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I have two, I, we drive Ford cars and so the keys are bit, they're like big chunky fob keys. Right. But if it wasn't for that, like it's, it's about the size of like a, a regular size Swiss army knife or like a, a Leatherman or something like that. So it fits nicely in your pocket. Um, if you tighten it, the keys don't swing out unless you want them to. So you don't have any unexpected pokes. Um, yeah, I, I really like it. It was worth the money. It wasn't, I think the one I got was like $20. So it's, it's affordable. Um, they're relatively durable. They have some less expensive ones that are made from plastic, but I, the reviews that I read that they break frequently. So I went with the, the metal one. Um, yeah. And I got a black one, so it's kind of low key. It's not super flashy. We need somebody to go back through all of our episodes, all 227 of them and just pull out weird things that we've said. One of those ones that should be pulled out is no unexpected pokes. Yeah. No We're basically a podcast pokes. that, that basically condones no unexpected pokes. True. We don't want that. It's true. What about you? What are you affirming this week? We don't want that. Well, besides that, I want to jump on the no unexpected pokes. Yeah. I, I do think that that we is substantial. We deny unexpected pokes. Yeah, that's very substantial. I'm also going in the practical realm, and I'm affirming with a website called NerdWallet, which I'm pretty sure many people are familiar with, nerdwallet.com. But it came up for me again because I know lots of people these days, uh, especially in the U.S., with the way the interest rates are right now, are looking to purchase homes. And that can be a wonderful thing. But this is a great website that has all kinds of recommendations for lots of different credit products, especially credit cards. But they have some wonderful calculators. One of those calculators is like the true cost of owning a home. So it helps you to kind of estimate all of the things you might not be thinking about, but you wish that somebody would have come along and said, hey, just so you know, you should set aside, for instance, probably 1% per year based on the purchase price of your home for just maintenance and repair. So it's just a great website. Yeah. I like it. It's non-threatening. It's a wonderful way to kind of expose you to all different kinds of practical financial information. So I'm going with that as my affirmation nice. this week. You could say that it helps you avoid unexpected homeowner pokes. Yeah, there's a lot of poking that can happen in finance. And I think this is basically the anti-poke website. So it's like the key smart of financial advising or financial <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. Recommendations. Yes, more or less. Yeah, it's great. So what about uh, denials? So this one is a little bit of a doozy. So <laughs> oh, here we go. I, I, I want to be charitable and respectful. I acknowledge there are different views on uh, this issue, but I interacted with somebody. I'm not going to say his Twitter handle because I, I don't know this guy. So I don't I don't I don't want to like throw him out there and unleash the horde on him. But his his tweet um, says COVID attendance restrictions that are placed on churches are an attack on the gospel. They limit the number of people a pastor can preach the gospel to at one time and requires them to turn people away if the cap is reached. So I responded to this and basically said, this is dumb. It's not an attack on the gospel. Uh, and here's why, right? Every church that I know of in America has an occupancy rating, right? It's a fire code. Right. That says, here are the number of people uh, based on criteria that I don't, I don't know all the criteria, but based on criteria, here's, here's the number of people that can safely occupy this building at any given time. If, COVID attendance restrictions are an attack on the gospel because they limit the number of people a pastor can preach to, then so are fire codes. So are occupancies. So is the fact that there's a physical size limit on the church, right? In terms of just how many people you could cram into the building. Right. And, and this is the kind of unnuanced thinking that I think is really frustrating for me to see because it doesn't, it doesn't think about categories carefully. It just, it just says, this is something I don't like. It puts some sort of restriction on me that I think is unlawful or unjustified. Therefore, it is persecution. It's an attack on the gospel. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. And through my conversation with this guy, he said to me, uh, well, you know, do you follow fire codes? If if your fire code says 60 and or 50 and 60 people show up, do you ten, turn 10 people away? And I said, well, I don't think that if I was pastoring a church that I would be running uh, a service that was that close to the limit. You know, if, if my building only had held 50 people uh, and I was regularly getting attendance of 45 or 50 people, then I would probably split into two services just so I don't have to turn people away if right. uh, if extra people show up. Um, the fact of the matter is I would. I would say, I'm sorry, our fire code only allows us this many people. But I told him what I would do actually is I would go to some of my regular attenders or members and say, hey, we've got some visitors that puts us over our fire code. Um, I'll tell you what, come back in an hour and we'll do a second service for you. You know, we'll take half of the people and we'll do a second service. And the response I got from people on that was basically like, well, that's so inconvenient. The fact of the matter is, Sometimes it's not convenient to follow the law, right? When I'm running late for work and I want to go the speed limit because that's what my civil magistrate has directed me to do for the public good and for the safety of those around me, um, that's not convenient. It'd be a lot more convenient to just speed, right? Um, and so I wanted to read something because I think the other thing that happens is people in the reformed world don't understand um, actually the difference between the church and state and how they're supposed to interact with each other. So we actually did an episode on this. I don't remember the episode number, but I think it's called Christians in the state or something like that. And here's, here's what the Westminster confession has to say. And granted the, the London Baptist confession of faith is different. There's a different relationship that Baptists have with the state than Presbyterians typically and traditionally, but here's the, the OPC's version. I think it's the 1788 um, revision 
And it's uh, chapter 23, section three. It says civil magistrates may not assume themselves to themselves, the administration of the word and sacrament or the power of the keys of the kingdom or in the least interfere with matters of faith. So a lot of reformed people look at them and go, they have no right to tell us how many people can come into our sanctuary because they can't interfere with matters of the faith. But that's not where it ends. It says yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons whatsoever shall enjoy full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred function without violence or danger. Well, where we have to be getting nuanced about this, and I had a really good conversation with someone on, on Twitter this last week about this, is that there are certain things that the church does that are, uh, they, the church is doing them, but they're not intrinsically churchy things, right? So, so the number of people that gather at a given time, there's no, there's no biblical command that you must have a certain number of people or can't have a certain number of people. That's a circumstance of, of reality that we have to account for, but it's not a regulated part of our worship. So when the state says no more than 15 people may gather at any time and no building in the state of, let's just say New Hampshire, this isn't the regulation of New Hampshire, but no building in the state of New Hampshire may have more than 15% of the occupancy at any given time for such and such a period of time. Um, when they say that, and it's generally applied, they're not regulating the worship of the church. They're not assuming the keys of the kingdom. What they're doing is they're governing for the common good, and the church happens to fall underneath that. Um, the, the other parallel example I gave would be if the state made some sort of regulation that that um, governed food distribution, and it was applied universally to anybody who did not have a restaurant license, but was still distributing food, you know, regulations like they have to wash hands, they have to wear gloves, they have to wear masks, whatever it is, the church would be obligated to follow that when it distributes the Lord's Supper. Uh, if, if the state says, if you're handing out food, you have to wear gloves, then the church can't say, well, this is communion, so we don't have to wear gloves. The church would have to say, well, this, this is a secular matter that impacts how we do this, but they're not directly regulating the Lord's Supper. Fire codes, COVID restrictions, those kinds of things fall under that second category. So even though it does affect how our worship is run, it's not actually governing our worship. The, the state is not coming in and saying, you can only have this many worshipers. It's saying you can have this many people. And you can, you can see different states have done this poorly. We talked about that. California has done this poorly because they singled out religious institutions. It's unconstitutional. It's not a generally applied order. That's a different thing. Um, so, so this is what's frustrating to me is that we're, we have Christians who are not able to think and apply categories in nuanced ways. Because as, as long as I had this conversation with this guy, he kept coming back to it. Well, they don't have a right to tell us how many people we can have in our building. And I finally pushed him. I said, do they have a right to tell you how many people in terms of fire code? Is fire code persecution? He didn't respond, but someone else said, no, but it's tyranny. It's not tyranny. Like, it, it, was, it was just a silly thing. So I'm denying this. I'm just denying the same thing we've been denying for the last year is that Christians don't they don't think about this. They don't realize that the argument, well, my rights, like that's not a Christian argument, right? Right. It might be an American argument. That's fine. And those things aren't necessarily contradictory, um, but it's not an intrinsically Christian thing. And I would argue in some ways, it's actually the contrary argument to Christianity to insist on enforcing your rights above all other considerations, which is what a lot of Christians are doing through this thing. Yeah, you said it right. This is a matter of understanding categories and being sensitive to the differentiation of, of different categories. 
And it strikes me as what we're saying here is you can't be, it's not that we're saying you shouldn't be empathetic to brothers and sisters who are trying to understand these categories, but it's also, we should be able to have an honest dialogue and one that's not like vociferous or polemic when it comes to this, which they, I think these things like immediately devolve, don't they? Because I've seen people say, well, um, I don't want, I'm trying to stay away from the specifics that we don't draw ourselves into a whole episode here, but that, well, if pastors, for instance, are being put in jail because they're meeting on the Lord's day, we need to understand what is like the primary foundation of the charge that's being levied against them right? and make sure that we understand the categories of that and not conflate the categories with persecution, which I think we've spoken at, spoken to and at with, you know, great resolve and yeah. with great thoroughness on a couple other episodes. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's think about things people like let's let's apply rational categories let's look at what the scripture has right. to say not everything that happens that negatively impacts the church is persecution uh, right. it's not all tyranny it's not all an attack on the gospel uh, even even things that are done that may hinder the gospel's ability to go forth are not necessarily attacks on the gospel yes yes so, that's well said it's it's trying to understand like it's almost like you can't just look at the face of something and try right. to make a judgment on that. You really need to think proactively about what's happening and about rules, regulations that are being applied to a right. certain situation with the ability to almost be agnostic to the actual, like people, I think the problem is they're reading intent right. into this stuff. And that is a big problem for me. And then we absorb the intent. We say, no, what's really happening here right. is it's not about health codes. It's not about safety. What they're trying to do is stop Jesus. Yeah. And I would always say the onus, the burden of proof is on the person who's making that argument to prove that is exactly the thing that's happening. Yeah. And at the same time, we can be empathetic and compassionate as we ourselves, as brothers and sisters, process this, but we just need to process it together and be yeah. honest about our processing. Yeah. And one, one last thing. I understand not all persecution is somebody explicitly saying, I'm attacking yes, you because of, of the gospel. I get that. Of course. But th- this particular was a response. This round of, of uh, sparring with people was involving this situation in Canada with Pastor James, I would say Codis, Cody's, Codis, um, who's a Grace, um, uh, Grace Seminary, John MacArthur School. He's a graduate from there. Uh, from what it seems like from an outsider's perspective, he refused to comply to various health codes uh, that required certain capacity restrictions. My understanding is they weren't being prohibited from singing. They weren't being prohibited from handing out the communion. They weren't being prohibited from preaching the gospel. It had everything to do with the number of people uh, crammed into a building and the usage of masks and social distancing. That's my understanding. I could be wrong, I suppose. But the state also looks like it gave, or I should say the crown, since it's Canada, the crown gave them lots and lots of opportunities to remedy the situation, told them exactly what needed to happen in order for them to be able to continue without legal ramifications. And there are hundreds and thousands of churches in Canada that are still meeting regularly, preaching the gospel, celebrating the Lord's Supper, being able to sing, doing all the things that are are essential to the, the church's worship that are not being shut down. So the difference between those churches that are are being allowed to continue and the churches that are being shut down is not the gospel, it's health codes. So that's that's something that tells us 
This is not persecution. They're not going around trying to find churches and saying, you're, you're not allowed to preach the gospel, so we're going to use this back door to stop you, because they're not trying to stop other churches from preaching the gospel. But th- that's what it is, is, is people lose sight of the fact that not everything bad that happens to the church is persecution, and not right. everything that that's hinders the gospel is an outright attack on the gospel. Um, so I don't, I, we can, I mean, if you want more, you can go back and listen to our other episodes. We did an episode on Doug Wilson and this debacle in, in Moscow, Idaho, or Moscow. Is it Moscow? We, we were correct. It's Moscow. Right. Moscow, Idaho. Um, we did the episode on how did, how should Christians react and, and interact with the state? Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll move on because otherwise this turns into a whole episode again, but Jesse, what are you <laughs> denying today? Well, that was like a very elevated denial. I'm going to bring us back down a little bit. I'm denying against the sense that just because we understand something, that it means that it's easy to understand or that we are somehow like exceptionally gifted to understand something. And this came out of an article I read this week that was published in the Wall Street Journal. The title of the article is How to Teach Professors Humility, Hand Them a Rubik's Cube. And I love this article because the whole point of it was saying uh, basically Furnham University and Denison University underwent this exercise where all these professors, you know, it's easy to complain their students weren't really grasping what they were teaching. And so what the administration did is they invoked this challenge where they said, we want all of our professors to be able to solve a Rubik's Cube in five minutes to learn that process. Now, maybe you're like me, I can, I think, solve a Rubik's Cube. I have in the past, but this time limit of five minutes basically forced all these people to learn something new and then to be in the place of a novitiate and to appreciate what it takes when you just can't get something where it's just too hard. And anybody can actually solve a Rubik's Cube. It's, it's challenging, but you can go out and find resources and I encourage everybody to do that. But I loved so much this idea of challenging because I think that sometimes even with theology, it seems to us because it's become innate to us, because it's so so usual to us, it's so ubiquitous for us that we think, oh, this is easy. Everybody should get this. And I just thought it was a wonderful opportunity to like grab something new, be forced to reconcile with it, do it in a short period of time, and then to be able to try to teach that when you yourself have suffered from trying to learn something that's like totally outside or foreign to yourself, that it's just a wonderful exercise. So I'm denying against this idea of like, be careful. Just because you think something is easy, it might be because it's become so commonplace to you. And it's always helpful to be humbled. And in my opinion, nothing humbles most people like the Rubik's Cube. Man, I hate those things. I cannot do them. <laughs> I, I, I understand. Mean, you, you could. You're an intelligent person. No, you definitely could no, with it, instruction. It's no, not a matter could. of intelligence. It's a matter of patience. Is, is I just, it's one of those things that seems so pointless to me. It's not pointless to the people who enjoy it. I understand that there's a, there's an enjoyment that people derive from it, but for me, I don't enjoy it. And so it just seems like this pointless exercise. And then when I think I'm making a little bit of progress, I remember that there's a world record for solving multiple Rubik's cubes at the same time while juggling them. (laughs) And that it's like a 12 year old kid who holds that record in Japan or something like that. So I'm just, I'm that guy that like smashes the cube and breaks the pieces off and then puts it back together. That's how I fix the Rubik's cube. Fair enough. I mean, it's very algorithmic, right? Like it's very much like, it's not entirely algorithmic. It's, it's being able to look at, all right, here's what the faces are set up as. I know that these arrangements yields this algorithm. So I need to turn it in this way. And it's, it's basically memorizing those different patterns. I I just am not, I I don't, I just don't care enough to do it. I mean, I, 
more power to the people that you you love the Rubik's Cube. I can see the pain look in your face that you're like, <laughs> I have to help Tony understand why this is an amazing thing. But no, no, no. I mean, I, it's a puzzle. And yeah. some people, everybody loves puzzles to one degree or another. It's just like where the puzzles manifested in their right. life. So that's fair. But I don't love it as much as most, maybe, because I, I, I have one. It's actually in my desk drawer. And I think it's I, I solved it some time ago and it's just, <laughs> just set on the solve like I haven't mixed it back up uh, but you're right it's it's a, a unique I would say like combination of the beginning parts of the cube you can solve in any number of ways it's when you get to the end stages yeah. where there is some algorithm but that's what makes it so interesting is like there's a pedagogy to this and that's the whole reason why I was brought into the kind of academic setting is this idea of forcing people who have been so accustomed to what they know and thinking, well, this should be straightforward, but just because it's become, it's like part and parcel of their lives. And so I think that that was just a fair warning to all of us that the things that we think we know that are easy might be just the things that we've mastered by way of bringing them into our lives with like repetition and learning. And that it's always good, even as we like proclaim the gospel to like make sure that we understand how to solve the Rubik's cube in a sense that there's no, I don't think there's any harm in taking a step back and processing everything that we know. So we might see it from the perspective of somebody who's maybe never heard it before and doesn't think that this, all these pieces just tie together so succinctly. And that's outside of the role of the Holy spirit, which we understand illuminates. I'm saying even in our communication, we can always do better. And sometimes it's helpful to take a step back and to see it from the perspective of a novitiate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I look at a Rubik's cube and I just get a headache because I'm thinking, <laughs> all right, there's there's six sides to this cube. There's nine squares on each side. That's like one with 25 uh, zeros or more, probably way more than that. Possible well combinations of good. all of these, pretty good, all of these different uh, things, and it's it's probably even harder than just that like random ratio because you can only arrange them in certain ways. There's no like. Yeah, I, I it, it's brilliant. You know, there's not only are there, of course, like Rubik's cubes with more sides, and that seems insane to me. But you can go on YouTube and, and just search for people solving like massive Rubik's, Rubik's cubes. But yeah. there's something called a void cube where, you know, part of the way that you're able to solve this, or at least the direction you receive, is that center cube never moves. Right. Everything rotates around it. So like the white side is always the side with the center cube is white. There's a special cube called a void cube where there's no center peg. Oh, and man. so you can't even tell which side you're supposed to be solving for. Like, so there's like all these like d additional levels where it would just make all of our minds do a somersault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at the void cube now and uh, it just I, makes, like, it gives me heartburn. <laughs> I need to go take some Prilosec or something. Uh, you're disgusted. Well, that's probably as good as any a segue because like the opposite of stressing over trying to solve a Rubik's Cube is in some way trying to relax. Yes. And so we're into chapter five, which in the parlance of David Murray in his book, Reset, he names every chapter after kind of like a repair bay as if to emphasize we got to bring our vehicles in, spend some time kind of. I don't know, meditating on what he's talking about in this chapter and the repair that he's talking about here is this idea of, I think it's more than rest, right? Relax yeah. actually, I say connotes something even beyond that because it's relax. I would say engenders like this sense of like additional rest, like more regular rest than just the Lord's day. Yeah. And so he really starts to unpack that in this chapter. So like where, where should we start? What's the first thing as you read this chapter with relax that really 
you would say like encapsulate what he's talking about here. Yeah. So the, the distinction that I draw between his chapter on rest, which was primarily about sleeping, um, it was it was a, a passive resting, right? It's yep. it, the, the emphasis was actually on like letting go of everything. And, and part of it was like recognizing God's sovereignty that the world keeps moving even when you're not. This chapter is more about taking control of the various stressors that are going on in your life and carving out time and ways to be separated from those stressors. And that's what he's talking about with relax. It's not just about like sleep. It's not at all about sleep in this chapter. It's not just about, um, you know, having enough time to decompress. It's about actively carving out time and strat using strategies to take those different stressors and to separate yourself from them for a time. Because I think one of the things that can be a risk with this kind of conversation is stressors are not bad things in and of themselves, right? Everybody right. has stressors, you know, going to work every day and earning an income so I can, can, uh, feed my family and can pay my bills. That's a stressor. That's not a bad thing, but it's a stressor. But if that's all that's there, if I'm always exposed to that stressor, that's where it becomes a bad thing. So he starts out with this image of this internal orchestra. And I actually think he would have done better to call it less of an orchestra and call it more of a cacophony, right? And a cacophony is a mess of noise. So if you think about that time, I don't know if I'm assuming that you've seen like some sort of orchestra performance live. Um, but when right. you go to a performance like this, there's this point before the orchestra starts. Oh, you're going to talk about tuning, yeah, aren't they're you? Yeah, they're tuning. That's and, exactly what I was thinking. And what's crazy is, so you have the first chair of, of the kind of like the, the first person in the whole orchestra starts to tune, and then they all start to tune their instruments. And as a guitar player, I cannot understand how this works, to be honest with you, because I need like total silence when I'm trying to tune my guitar. But they start to tune their instruments. And, and what happens is it's just this mess of noise. Everybody's doing their own thing at one time. And then over the course of, of this tuning, as they start to get more in tune, it actually becomes more and more unified until finally right. they're all kind of, the strings are all bowing their instruments in the same rhythm and it's the same note and everything is unified. This inner, this inner orchestra that he's talking about, he talks about these different voices in our heads, right? There's the voice of greed that's kind of like, trying to get more. I want this. I need that. I've got to get this. I don't have enough of that. There's this voice of shame of, I should have done this more. Uh, this is the thing I forgot to do. You know, like when you, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you remember there was that report you were supposed to send at work, like, yeah, you should have sent it, but sitting up at night and thinking about it doesn't help you send that report. So there's that voice. There's this, this voice of the things that you are angry about. There's this voice of the, the guilty conscience. So he's got all these different things. And then he adds this one. I don't know why this is part of the internal orchestra because it's actually an external thing. But then he adds on top of it, all of the bings and bongs and notifications from your, your media and your other stuff. I would actually add in some ways, like the people in your life that kind of like pester you and are constantly coming at you, you know, distracting you from things, all of this stuff forms this cacophony and it never quite comes into the unit, the unity of that tuning. It's just this, this background noise that keeps you stressed out and awake. And I thought this was a really powerful metaphor because I don't know about you, but when I've been at these concerts where they do this tuning thing up front, there is this like anxiety that you feel when they're doing it, that you're kind of like, I just want it to be over. I want them to get tuned up so we can get started. 
it's like living in that moment before the orchestra starts when everything is chaotic, but living there permanently is kind of what he's right. talking about. So then the rest of the chapter is different strategies, different ways to sort of like pare down those voices and pull them out. Or, or I would think in the metaphor to get those in tune with the other ones, which means sometimes it's not playing. Sometimes the violins don't right. play. Sometimes the oboe doesn't play. It's it's getting everything in alignment and harmonizing, which means taking time away from all of it and building those rhythms into your life. Yeah. And here's why this is like distinctly Christian. You're striking on something I think very profound and illustrative. The example is really good and you're actually developing it even beyond what he wrote. When you hear a group that large tuning, what you're sensing is like, even like the human ear, the way that God has designed us is to always want to bring resolution, even in like chord structure, right. we always want to resolve back to like a major key. So when you hear that tuning, there's this tension of everything is not quite as it should be, but the whole purpose of the tuning is to eventually resolve into something where it is harmonious right. and is in fact all working together. So when he talks about this inner orchestra, and I want to quote David Murray here, because I think this best summarizes what you just said, he writes, quote, every Christian wants to know God more. Few Christians sequester the silence that this requires. Instead, we spend our day smashing, stillness shattering, knowledge destroying symbols on our ears and in our souls, end yeah. quote. So this both breeds something that's like philosophical and spiritual, and also it spills over into the practical, which he gets into in terms of like, well, how can we actually put this into our everyday lives and prevent ourselves from being in the place where all we're hearing is the tuning? Because the whole point of the tuning is to get out of the tuning. Right. So like, but the question is, do we just end ourselves or keep ourselves in this place of this space where we're always in this tension as opposed to moving out and beyond it? And I think he's right in that the, like the off quoted and misunderstood and maybe oft misunderstood idea of be still and know that I'm God. But the question is, how often do any of us actually apply that? Because like it, I took an inventory of my life after reading this chapter where I said, how often am I not listening or being stimulated by anything? Like not reading something, not listening to something, just being in quiet. And to be totally honest, it was almost none of my day. Like realistically, like maybe it was the shower, but even then, like I might be singing to myself or thinking about stuff, but I'm certainly not seeking after this sense of trying to remove everything so I might focus on God or better yet, like have the scriptures read me or be in a place where I can meditate on the scriptures. Yeah. So He's definitely after something here that I think on the face, everybody's going to say, oh, of course, like, yes, the, the Bible tells us quietness is a gift from God. But the question is, how many of us have really invoked some kind of volitional appreciation or getting after that kind of quietness? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if when I get in the car, the first thing I do is turn on the radio, I'm uncomfortable to some degree of the silence, even in the vehicle while I'm just driving, Yeah, which in many ways is just kind of like a mundane pedestrian, no pun intended activity. So yeah. he's after something here. Yeah. And, and you know, I think we don't realize how relatively new in the history of humanity this idea of constant noise and constant distraction is right. So yeah, for sure, if you, if you think about, and I, I'm not, I, I don't affirm evolution on, on macro evolutionary scales, but even if you think about this on those terms, if you're, if you're a listener who does affirm that, think about how God created humans, right? He created us in a garden uh, or he created man and then placed man in this garden. There were noises, but they weren't constant. Um, and, and then think about how throughout the history of humanity, 
you couldn't just turn on the radio. Like if some, if you wanted music, somebody had to sing it for you. Somebody had to play it for you. Right. So, so people lived in this time period where there were actually these long periods of relative silent, not like utter silent. We're not talking about like people living in deep, dark caves where there's no sound, but where there wasn't this constant, uh, constant structured noise, structured sound, right? There might be background noise. There's birds chirping. There's wind. There's always sound. But people people lived in this time period in this frame where there just wasn't always that. And now even even um, I don't remember what I was reading, but I was I was reading about somebody who who what they did is they made uh, they made nature soundscapes. That was what they did. And they would often have to go out into nature and record for 12 or 15 hours in the middle of the night to get like an hour of usable nature sounds that didn't have a car driving by or a plane flying overhead or some sort of artificial noise. And so humans for most of our history, whether you're a a young earth creationist like me, or whether you're an old age evolutionist, right? Most of our history has not lived in this frame of, of sound where we had this constant noise and, and the noise that was there was not intelligible noise. It wasn't noise that our brains felt like we had to process and comprehend and understand. And so we're just not designed to do that. I've mentioned before that I used to listen to podcasts at three times speed. And I've gone back and forth on whether or not that's a good thing, because it's nice to be able to cram that much information in your head. But there were times where I would go on like long car drives, like I, I would drive, like if I was going taking a trip to Boston to go to a conference or something, I would I would drive, it's a two and a half hour drive from where I am, I would listen to podcasts the entire time at three times speed. And I would get there and feel just mentally exhausted, because I was right. cramming nine hours of lectures into my brain over the course of two and a half hours. So by the time I got there, I just wanted to like lay in my bed and like let my brain relax. So we we have to remember we're finite creatures. So this, this constant noise, constant chatter that takes resources for us to process. And that's part of why, you know, he, he appeals to certain studies. I don't have it right in front of me, but there's a study where mice who are exposed to a certain amount of silence every day, they, they started spontaneously growing new brain cells in their hippocampus, which is things that control memory and, and things like cognition. So silence and that chance for our brain to really just rest physically, not to mention the spiritual benefits, that is really, really important for human beings to have. And I love that he emphasizes that as kind of like a daily activity. Again, it's not just about rest or relaxation on the Lord's Day, which of course we both affirmed elsewhere is super important and that we make a commitment to that. What he's after is this idea of like decreasing marginal productivity. Right. I think I've given this example before as we've, you and I have talked. You know, if you, I could basically, for me, there is no size of chips that is not single serving <laughs> if you don't take it away from me yeah. that, because I just love potato chips. But the, the fact of the matter is, even though I love them, if you put a bag of like freshly opened potato chips in front of me, like the first several are going to have like such an amazing impact. They're going to be so delicious because I haven't had any yet or the ones that I've had have been, you know, small in number. For every additional chip I eat, they're less satisfactory. And then at some point, I actually reach the peak and then they start to make me sick, but I'll keep eating them. Yeah. And so there's actually negative marginal productivity. And he's basically making the same statement here. What I find interesting is that so many people that are not Christians have already recognized this concept because they've exhausted themselves in their right. work. 
They're the kind of people that say like, well, I thought what was to be celebrated is the number of hours I put into my job. So I'm going to work 60, 70, 80 hours because that's like a badge of honor and I'm doing more good than if I just worked 40 hours. And what we're finding here is that these people who are on the outside, who are not Christians, have discovered that at some point the returns to every additional hour actually become negative such that you're actually doing less for all of the hours that you've worked than if you just worked a lesser number of hours. He's emphasizing this is because we're contingent beings, because God never made us to work like this, that we are always supposed to rely on God for all feats of strength that we do, no matter what they are. That was not a signful reference, but <laughs> weirdly turned out to be one. Yes. And so because of that, when we speak about like distractions not being focused, that our God is a God of focus that we find Jesus, even in his earthly life, being continually focused on that what he was. Like to quotes like Keith Green, wherever you are to be fully there. That's something that's very difficult for us. Like I think we said before, multitasking is essentially like a pernicious lie. I mean, there's been so many studies that have proven that multitasking as like some kind of efficacious behavior for completing multiple things with maximum you know, like sense of like accomplishment or like optimization is just not true. Yeah. And so he's getting after it from more of the spiritual perspective. And what I like that you brought up is that when he says there's like this cacophony of noise, as you said, it's not just about, well, your mind is distracted. It's that because of the sinful state of man, like the total depravity of man, that part of that cacophony is mixed messages with regard to like selfishness in your intentions. Yeah. And that these things themselves, if you do not silence them by coming before the word of God, by meditating, by seeking some kind of separation in your life from all distractions, that what's actually happening is it's not just bad enough that like your phone is constantly sending you push notifications and that this takes your mind away from the thing that should be focused on, presumably, but that beyond that, that in your selfishness and your self-aggrandizement, that what you're actually doing is you're actually separating yourself from God. Because without being silent before him, that you're tempted to give all of those other things an over-indexed amount of weight in how you process the world yeah. around you. It becomes centered on you and not centered on God himself. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, um, there's this theory in, in productivity, I don't know, productivity science, I don't know what you want to call it, but called the tyranny of the urgent. Right. And the, tyr yes, the yep. tyranny of the urgent is most things that are urgent are not actually all that important in the grand scheme of things. Right. And, but they feel super important because they're right in your face and super urgent. And so what you end up doing is you spend all of your time working on these urgent things and you never actually get to the important things. And th this this isn't about this isn't a podcast today about like productivity and, and like task management. But that that is a similar kind of thing that happens, particularly I really like that he called out digital media, digital things as something that needs to be brought under control because sure. your phone operates on this principle of the tyranny of the urgent. They always want that to take priority and overriding precedent over everything else that's going on. That's why your, your watch, your smartwatch, if you don't turn the notifications off, will beep at you until you silence the notification. That's why Facebook has this weird feature on a lot of phones where even when you tell the phone that you want to silence notifications, Facebook has this back-end way to turn the sound of the, your notifications back on. So you still get that stupid ding from your Facebook Messenger. And and I've come to the conclusion that the only real way to hand to the only real way to win this game is not to play. So people yes, who are in the agreed. Reform Brotherhood Facebook group have probably noticed that I don't do much in there. 
I, I cross post a couple things from our Facebook page, uh, episode links, some catechism art that I make and some other kinds of like, like reflections on, you know, uh, confessions and things like that. That's all automated, right? I do all that on Saturday morning. I queue up a full week's worth of that stuff. And then I don't go back in there for the rest of the week. And that's because I was getting exhausted by this stuff. I would wake up in the middle of the night and this is, this is not an exaggeration. I would wake up in the middle of the night remembering something I should have said to someone online, so, some response to an argument that I should have made online. And I would, I would lay awake because I was afraid if I fell asleep, I wouldn't remember it in the morning. That is a ridiculous, sinful pattern of behavior. Like I was taking away from my sleep. I was taking away from my job. I was taking away from my family to be able to, to maintain that tyranny of the urgent. So for me personally, and this is not a, this is not law for everybody, but for me personally, the only way to get that digital media stuff under control was just not to be a part of it. So that's why, like I said, this stuff that I'm doing on Twitter for the most part, not exclusively, Twitter is a little bit easier to just shut off than Facebook is. But for the most part, most of my positive contributions in terms of things that I'm creating for Facebook or for Twitter and Facebook, those are all done on a, an hour and a half or two hours that I set aside on a Saturday morning where I, I write all those tweets, I queue them up in a software called Buffer, and then I, I set it and I forget it. Sometimes it's funny, I'll get a little notification on my phone that someone liked a comment that I did, and I'm like, I don't even remember making that comment. And then I look at it, I was like, oh, that's when I queued up two and a half weeks ago. So it's it's important to find ways to set set yourself up for success in this. For me, that was getting off of Facebook entirely. For you, that might just mean that you uninstall the app on Sunday. I used to do that. It was great. I would uninstall the Facebook app on Sunday so it wasn't distracting me on the Lord's Day. Then I would reinstall it on Monday and I would re-log in. So there's, it's important. And that's what I like about this chapter is he he calls them speed bumps. He's got this image of a road and, and he's got this picture of us going down this road at speed and he's wanting to slow us down enough so that we can sort of take a break. And so he wants to put in speed bumps every day, every week, every month, every quarter, and then sort of seasonal speed bumps. Yes. And we don't, we don't have to go through all of them, but I think it's a really useful way to look at it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think what happens is we underestimate the impact this kind of stuff has on our lives, especially our spiritual condition. And so I took his advice, and this is the first time I've said this to anybody, I tried, one of the things he recommended was basically trying to create boundaries around like the notifications that we receive on your devices. So I took my iPhone, I have an iPhone and I turned the do not disturb instead of like setting it on like the hours where I'm sleeping, I actually set it on my work hours. I allowed myself to receive uh, uh, phone calls because I have phone calls of a business nature, but I turned off all the other notifications. It's actually been super great. Yeah. It's been super helpful. And it's, it may, some people are going to listen to this and say like, that's super dramatic. But I think that what he's after is you might need to get dramatic because you have no idea how this is actually influencing like your state of mind, your condition. And what I find embarrassing is there's so many other resources right now that are coming out and saying like, this stuff is not, not only is it not helpful, it's possible that it's not healthful for you. Right. And I think we should just at least acknowledge that that might actually be the truth. This might be the case. And I'd rather receive that information from somebody like David Murray, who says that this has an impact on your spiritual condition and that basically any time that you spend, I think like John Piper has this quote, something like in the last day, Twitter and Facebook will prove that we didn't, it wasn't that we didn't have enough time for prayer that we, but we were just prayerless people. Right. All this stuff, you might find this to be extreme. You might find that as somebody like nitpicking, or it might be like Luddite to you. But I think what the point they're trying to make is just that 
we have not made the plain things the main things. Right. We get distracted by all these other lesser things, to your point, and the sense of urgency where my where my phone, and this is ridiculous to me, but my phone is like a whiny toddler that always wants to give it get my attention. If I give it that attention, then I'm actually the one that's suffering. Right. So there's something about this that I think David Murray is right on about. And all I would say is like, we should give him a fair listen that we're all reasonable people. So let's evaluate what he's saying here. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he has other things, you know, he talks about the importance of like breathing. And I've mentioned before that I'm using this app called balance that I really like. Um, it's a mindfulness app. And I know sometimes mindfulness has some weird spiritual components to it. I have not found that to be the case on this app. So use it at your own caution, but I have not found there to be an overly or overtly spiritual component to it. It really is more about uh, controlling your breathing and being able to sort of like silence these thoughts, right? Turning off the orchestra long enough to sort of like catch your breath before you go back out into the craziness. Um, he talks about the importance of reading and, and all of all of the benefits. I don't think that our audience needs to be convinced that they need to read, but what they might need to be convinced of is to take a break from what I would call productive reading. Yes, right? I agree there's, with you on There's that. reading that we do because we're trying to accomplish some sort of task, right? For for me, um, it's funny because I took a couple vacation days last week around my birthday. Um, I took Saturday, I took Friday and Monday. My birthday was on a Sunday. I took Friday and Monday off. And I got through maybe like halfway through the day on, on Monday and Ashley works from home on Mondays. And I said, you know, I feel like I haven't accomplished anything with my vacation. I've just been playing video games the whole time. And she looked at me and she said, you're on vacation. Like, what are you trying to accomplish on vacation? And, and the point was, I, I looked at my vacation as a chance to like catch up on all this productive reading that I was trying to do. Right. I was going to get ahead and reset. I was going to read some other stuff. I had this grand scheme I've mentioned of trying to make it through a bunch of different systematic theologies. I was like, I've got eight hours. I'm going to get through like half of, of the first volume of Francis Turretin. That's like a ridiculous idea. Instead, I played this video game for like seven hours because it was a way I could shut my brain off and just rest for a while. And what we need to learn is we need to learn not to feel guilty about that. And so I think a lot of this with our audience, probably where they feel it is everybody has this stack of theology books. Maybe it's on, maybe it lives on your dresser next to your bed, or maybe you have a stack in your office. Mine lives on Goodreads or in Asana. I've got this stack of books that I, I'm... I've convinced myself for good reason is important for me to read. What I don't often do is I take a break from that to do something and read something that isn't productive, right? Pick up Harry Potter and, and read it, get a, a short term subscription to Marvel comics unlimited and read an entire story arc or something like that, because your brain needs that chance to sort of like go on autopilot and not think too hard. Cause it needs to re needs to reset <laughs> pun intended. Um, <laughs> but I think that's something that would be helpful. And he, he mentions that, you know, he mentions reading things that don't have to do for work. It's always right. great when you can combine something you love to do with a task that you need to accomplish. But just because that saves a little bit of time doesn't mean that you actually are gaining the benefit of doing something you love to do when you know in the back of your head, it actually is is really contributing to a work effort or to a productivity effort. That's why it's important to, to just step back and go, I need to just read something or do something that isn't contributing to me producing something because it takes some of that pressure off of you. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm going to say something that's not like even fully, fully orbed in my own mind, but I've been wrestling with this idea in part because of what we've been reading. 
And I'm the kind of person that likes to think that almost every other day in some way is productive to some sense. And we can really mess ourselves up as Christians because we can start reading the Bible or reading theology so much so to the extent that we're trying to absorb it so we can teach it to others right. or equip ourselves or be smarter or more efficacious in what we're communicating. And I get it. That's okay. But what happened to just reading it so that we would embody it and therefore in the embodying of it, that would do its own teaching? Yeah, I find myself moving away and disassociating from sometimes the text, even the scripture itself, because I'm reading it for the sense of trying to understand it. So I might communicate it better. So I might know it more thoroughly without really internalizing it. And that could be its own episode in its own way. But then beyond that, there's this sense where like sometimes it's like so wonderful to read broadly, to study things broadly, to have interests that are very broad and outside of like our own like particular sphere of expertise or influence. Yeah. And that in itself is like its own gift because it's, it's God expressing to us again that there's so many things that you do not know that you need me for. And so there's this concept that I've been wrestling with, this imagery in my own mind where I've been thinking in my own sphere of study, my own like professional vocation, where I've been trying to imagine that I'm doing everything, like my own work, creating spreadsheets, doing calculations, working on algorithms, doing SQL coding in the holy of holies. And for me, it's a sense of bringing joy or reuniting or reinvigorating the joy in the thing that I think God has made me to do and just take sheer appreciation in it. But then to do that thing in a place where it's like unbridled, unadulterated, unvarnished worship that in there's always joy in worship. And that when I separate myself from that worship, it's mainly because I've gotten distracted. I've gotten concerned with how things appear to be rather than the way things actually are. I've gotten concerned with trying to make myself present as a person of knowledge rather than just embracing and enjoying the knowledge that God has given me yeah. where I've made myself God in respect to how I understand and imbibe knowledge as opposed to going to the one who is the source of all knowledge. Yeah. So I want to learn at the feet of Jesus and I appreciate everything that happens, especially with respect to like Daniel, where in the book of Daniel, he talks about how when even they're indoctrinated with everything that King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to teach them, they receive essentially like an extra blessing because God is the one who's conferring the knowledge upon him, upon them, even if it's like quote unquote secular knowledge. Right. So this idea of taking everything that God has made us to have an interest in and to bring it into this place or the space of the Holy of Holies and to use it as worship, not to reappropriate it as worship, but to recognize that that thing in its essence is worship when we come to God and say, you are the one who understands, knows all things. And therefore I seek after you as much as I seek after the knowledge itself, knowing yeah. that you're the one who grants it. So there's like so much in this chapter. I, I'm just worried for myself and maybe for those who are listening to us that they've gotten this sense that these are like simple things that what David Murray here is writing about is like so practical as to remove the essence of what complicates it. This is super complicated. Yeah. This is really, I think, theology at a very high and elevated level because it's getting after how we behave and work and understand. And it seems like what we're saying here is we're like pulling in just like studies and basic concepts of humanity. What we're talking about is really all those things have been borrowed from God himself, from the understanding of what it means to be totally depraved and to have a savior who rescues us and then gives us a different sense of calling so that when Paul says, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's not just speaking about spiritual things. He's speaking about all things, including the way in which we relax, relax, relax. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, this chapter, um, I think, is 
surprisingly complicated. And the yes. reason I say yeah. that is because, you know, I think we've all had that experience where we take a vacation from work or we take a break from something, whatever it is, whatever our obligations are, we we carve out some time away from it and we are not cautious and we just fill up that time with other obligations, right? So like the classic example that, that happens in my life is I'll take a day off work, but then I, I plan my doctor's appointment or my dental visit. I, you know, I go get the car inspected. Right. I do the grocery shopping that day. So I have to do another day. And then all of a sudden it's five o'clock and I'm like, where did my day go? I thought I had all these other plans that I was going to do. And, you know, th this quote, I've heard this quote before. Um, um, Murray attributes it to Wayne Mueller in a book called Sabbath, Finding Rest, Renewal and Daylight, a Delight in Our Busy Lives. I have heard it in other places, so I'm sure that either this guy quoted or they were quoting him. I'm not 100% sure. But it, the quote is, if we do not allow for a rhythm of rest in our overly busy lives, illness becomes our Sabbath. Yes. Our pneumonia, our cancer, our heart attack, our accidents create Sabbath for us. And and I think that that is a really important thing for us to end, end this um, with, is that we can very easily... Um, trick ourselves into thinking that we are taking a break, that we're taking a rest. Um, and this Sabbath issues, Sabbath obligations aside, um, this is just a general, a general reality is that we, we might think that we're carving out time for ourselves, uh, to, to rest and to relax and to recuperate. And then we fill it up with a bunch of stuff. And what we've done now is we've just tricked ourselves into thinking that we're relaxing. And those kinds of things actually have more of a detrimental effect on us than I think we realize. So when, when I take a day off work and then I fill it up with a bunch of stuff, I go back to work feeling more frustrated and stressed about not just my job, but about my life in general than I, than I would have if I had just worked that day. Because what I've done is I've tricked myself into thinking I'm taking a rest and then I don't feel rested. And so I feel like, I feel like I'm just, I'm on this treadmill and I can't get off. Because I, 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 no matter what I do, even when I take a break, I don't feel rested. Well, the problem is that you're not actually resting. And so what I want to, what I want to leave everyone with is not only is it okay, it's actually really important to take a day, a week or a, a you know, obviously, like I said, Sabbath obligations aside, Sabbath conversations aside, it's important to take a periodic rest that is actually rest. That's actually a chance to be separated from the stressors and the, the obligations of our day. And it's it's interesting because your family actually modeled this for me. It was one of the first families that I ever interacted with that really modeled this for me. Because the very first year that I was involved in the family was the year that I was invited to come to the annual beach vacation. And it's not like we, there's not, no working that's done there, right? We're all reading. We're, we have to keep the house clean. We have to make meals. Like, it's not like we're just laying around being served by people. We're not, people aren't feeding us grapes or something like that. But it was the first time that I observed a family that really genuinely took a rest, really genuinely separated themselves from their daily obligations, from their daily tasks, even, even from the, the typical things they're doing and reading. Um, you know, I remember like last year, the last time we went to the beach, I asked dad like what, what he was reading and it was a totally different reading list than what he was reading in his normal time. He wasn't just bringing books that he was already reading with him. He was bringing different books that were set aside as beach reading that were a little bit less impact. They were a little bit easier. They weren't contributing. It wasn't research for a sermon series. It wasn't stuff he was preparing for school. It was just 
books he wanted to read that he wanted to enjoy while he laid on the beach and got totally sunburned. Like that's, that's the vacation for him. (laughs) So I I think that that's a really important thing that Christians just aren't good at. And Murray makes a bunch of points about this, that we, we feel selfish. We feel like we're not being productive. All of those things, to be honest, are lies. Like it strikes me how restrictive in a certain sense the Sabbath is in terms of not allowing you to do things. And that's God's grace in saying this day is a day of rest. And here's what rest actually looks like. You don't even start a fire, right? Do your best to cook your food the day before. That That's how strict God is because that's how important rest is. There's a, a religious worship obligation that has, that's, that's tied in there too. It has to do with our slavehood to God. But the, one of the core things about the Sabbath is this is what true, genuine rest looks like. And I think we really, really miss that in most of our lives. Yeah, I think you're right about that. It's, and he's, he's doing good to remind us of that, that this idea of relax is more than just the Lord's day. It's at the minimum, the Lord's day. Right. But I think what I'm like inferring is there's a little bit of a challenge here to say, how are you bringing every Lord's day into every day of your life? Right. And I think is it in this chapter where he even says something like to the extent of even like the most efficacious generals in the midst of like battle actually took time to do something other than planning strategy. Like they weren't wholly consumed because in this idea of sensing that, to be wholly consumed with something is the best possible thing. He's saying you're actually doing yourself a disservice. Was that this or was that reading that somewhere else? I think it was the last chapter because it talked about how they would go out and take a brisk walk and things. Yeah. Okay. So I think that that's fair. It's like this idea of that no matter what you're after, even if that's quote unquote like the Lord's work, there's something about our God being a good father who gives good and gracious gifts and good things for us to enjoy. Yeah. That when he says, come unto me, all you who are in need of rest, he really means that. He treats us like sheep. Sheep are stupid, they're dumb, and he knows their needs. And so he says, like, come and find rest. Like, I'm compassionate towards you, even in the thing you're trying to pursue and the thing you're trying to undertake, but that you desperately need me as the source of rest every day. Not just the Lord's day, especially that day, but every day. Yeah. Jesse, this is such a great book. I want to encourage everyone to go out and pick it up. It's not super expensive. It's not a difficult read. It actually is a pretty good book to read as sort of your alternate reading because it, it's it's relatively it low is. impact. It's re- not low impact in terms of like it's not going to change your life. It is going to change your life if you read it and follow it as to say. But it's low impact in that it doesn't. it's not a really difficult read. And so right. it makes a good change of pace and a good break. Um, not for me because this is something productive we're doing. But for for people who aren't doing this as a productive thing, um, pick it up. And as we've said, we're going to be doing a giveaway. Uh, The publisher has graciously provided us with a copy to give away at the end of this thing. So we will get that. um, Once we get a little closer, we'll get the contest information up. We'll talk to you about how you can win this. But we don't want you to wait to get the book until you win it from us. We want you to buy the book now. Keep going through it with us. And then when you win the book, give it to somebody uh, that you know that would benefit from it. This is a sneaky book, isn't it? Like I almost want to again challenge people by saying, if you're looking at this and thinking it's too simplistic, it's possible all of us, including myself, have missed the point. Yeah. That there is some things here that he challenges us to put into practice that are so meaningful, so deep, and so challenging that if we just read it and say, yeah, I understand what he's saying, that we're actually missing the very point that he's trying to express. So I think there's just so much in this that we can take from it if we're willing to invest ourselves. And isn't that really what God calls us to do is to invest ourselves deeply into the gospel, 
into our understanding of who he is, what his character is like. And they take that stuff and say, well, how does that impact whether I get push notifications? Like, isn't that really yeah. the Christian challenge? Like yeah. saying, if we're different people that should matter in all areas of life, we shouldn't stress over all those areas. And yet at the same time, we should be thoughtful, which really goes back to your denial. We should be thoughtful about the categories in which we live and understanding how the Christian understanding of those categories changes the way in which we live, including the very notifications that we get on our phone. In other words, there's nothing that isn't so small that it shouldn't come under the Lordship of Christ, but we're just so used to thinking that we're big enough that those things don't actually influence us. Yeah. And I think what David Murray is saying is you maybe ought to take a step back. I think what he's saying is check yourself before <laughs> you wreck yourself. Yes. Or if we want to be more <laughs> Westminsterian about it, checketh thine self before thy wrecketh thine self. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I just made that up. That's a t-shirt, I think. Oh, that's definitely a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Like, again, where are the people? Like, we need other brothers and sisters who can take these great ideas that I think we have and convert them into, like, wonderful materials. Yeah. Or be honest enough to tell us they're not that great of ideas. <laughs> Well, on that note, Jesse, I think I have a great idea, and that's to bring this plane down. So, yes. until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. What if I'm far from-